church this morning paying attention. It's a great sermon by a, a pastor from a church down the road. And, and uh, as I'm thinking, he's drawing this distinction between uh, uh, folks who are unfortunate and folks who are irresponsible. And I'm thinking through all of that and, and like a light goes off in my brain of how I wish I'd written this lesson differently. And so, so it doesn't have anything to do with what he was saying, except just the way my train of thought went from what he was saying to what I was getting ready to say. Um, I thought, boy, I wish I'd written this a little differently. So we're going to talk about it a little bit differently. I'll have to, I couldn't adjust the PowerPoint because I posted ahead of time. I sure couldn't have adjusted the written lessons. And I wish I'd sent an email out to you this week telling you this, but I'm just not where I need to be all the time in my brain. All right, so here's the deal. If there's one thing I get asked about over and over and over by people in class, it's to talk about the Trinity. Because the Trinity is a very, very difficult concept. Now, I made a I, I took a quotation from Augustine and put it at the end of the lesson on the Trinity. But even that quotation is hard to understand because... Uh, it's Augustine, and he was writing 1,600 years ago, and we just don't think the same ways. But having said that, the lesson this morning has relevance on the issue of the Trinity. And some of this has been targeted also because Larry Burgess and I have an ongoing conversation with a mutual friend uh, about some Trinity issues. And this lesson can really plug in and speak to us in a very definite, intellectual, but also practical way, spiritually, about the Trinity. So with that in mind as your teaser, let's make sure we're all in the same force. So here's what we've got to do. I've got a ton more material than I can get through, even though it's just like a 12, 13-page handout. ton more than I can get to. But we can't get to any of it if you're not in the flow of where we were last week. So I've got to do a little more reviewing than I normally would to make sure you're in the flow. But I'm going to review this really fast. So if you were not here last week, fasten your seatbelt, pick up what you can. If you were here last week, then let's get through this quickly to make sure we're in the same flow. This really is about a three session lesson I should be teaching. Oh, I see some high schoolers back there. Hello, high schoolers. Good to see y'all. Pay attention. You'll learn. <laughs> Saying that particularly because I'm related to half of those high schoolers and the other ones I claim as my children. Okay, so here it is. We were talking last week, high schoolers who were not here, about how you go about making deliberate choices. How do you decide which debate case you might run or which argument you might make in public forum or which of three extent topics you drew you might choose to speak on? Or how do you make a decision about what kind of car you're going to buy or what color car or which job you're going to take? For that matter, how do you make a decision about who you're going to marry? My wife, Becky, had a choice of multiple suitors. There were like five losers that asked her before I came along. <laughs> she had enough foresight to say no to each of them before I caught her in a weak moment. 
So how do you make deliberate choices? When you have a choice you're going to make, how do you do it? Well, different people do it different ways, and I'm not here to tell you how to do it. But I am here to tell you to recognize that there is such a thing as a deliberate choice. Uh, just a, not just something you default into, you just happen to do. It's a deliberate choice. I am going to make a choice about what I eat today for lunch. Because we're not going home. We're going to eat out. So I will have a menu and I will get to choose. Now John had a menu and got to choose when he wrote his gospel. John wrote his gospel and with the target in mind of I'm going to put in seven miracles done by Jesus. The perfect number seven. And he wants to choose seven miracles. So John chooses out of all of the miracles Jesus did, seven particular ones. Seven ones. And that's his choice. He had to make a choice. That's the way he chose. So we asked this question last week. If we look at this verse, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written. Look at the emphasis there. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he picked out these seven for a particular reason. And if we want to know why did John pick out those seven miracles, then we've got to look at what he said. I chose these seven so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, we paused last week and we said, I've got to make a change here. This is behind and it's messing me up. There. No, one more. Okay, thank you. We made a point last week. You may read this passage. These are written so that you may believe and think it applies to people who don't already believe. And John's gospel is certainly useful for that. But if you read this as a present tense verb, which uh, 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 most scholars do, it's actually saying that you're already believing in Jesus. You've already trusted in him, but we're writing this to strengthen that belief, to encourage that belief, to aid you in that belief. And to that extent, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is your gospel. Not just in the sense of, hey, I love it, but in the sense that it's written for you. It's written to help you understand more fully who Jesus is. And John chose those seven miracles for that purpose. And it makes us want to examine the miracles. But before we examine the miracles, we first look through the rest of this verse. This is so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to continue. Paul, uh, John wrote, chose those miracles and wrote about them, not only so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but also so that you might believe he's the Son of God. Now, the Son of God, what is the Son of God? Well, we talk about it, and we know it, and we don't have any trouble with the Son of God because we live in the 21st century. And we've had 2,000 years to figure this out. Wrong. We do have trouble. 
All of us have trouble. All of us have trouble because it's trying to wrap your mind around the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That's a Trinity issue. And it's really tough. This morning on the way to church, I have a Sunday tradition. Every Sunday on the way to church, I call our son and I talk to him. He lives in England. It's in the afternoon there. I always say, good afternoon, Will. He always says, good morning, Dad. And it's a Sunday tradition. He knows the call's coming. I know the call is coming. And our son is very, very special and dear to me, as are our daughters. Because all five of our children came into existence, but they had never existed before. There's not a parent in this room who has a son that when you use the word son is not automatically thinking about a life that came forth from me that did not exist before that. If not from me, if it's an adopted son, still a life that came forth from the womb that did not exist before it was created. But Jesus existed as God. Christ, Messiah, God the Son existed before Mary. And so this idea of what does it mean to be the Son of God, it does not mean Son in the sense that we have children. In the sense of bringing into a life that which was not before. So we say, yeah, but it means bringing into a physical, worldly, material life. Ah, Is that really what it means? Okay, this is what I want you to be thinking about. And this is what I want to talk about. What does it mean? If you go back in ancient literature, when John was writing, when Jesus was alive and living on earth, If you go back at that point in time, you can read lots of references to a son of God or to sons of God. The Greeks would call their Greek heroes, there's Perseus, a son of God. And so the Greek heroes were a son of God. You could go into the Roman world and the Roman emperor was referred to as a son of God. So the string of emperors, they were sons of God. You could go over to Egypt, and if you were in a noble family, certainly if you were a Pharaoh, you were referred to as sons of God. So that's a label that had different meaning in all of those cultures. And we can move those cultures aside and say, okay, but we want to know in the Bible, what did the Jews mean when they talked about the Son of God? And we can look in the Old Testament and find that the Son of God was used to talk about the nation of Israel, the genetic offspring of Abraham. Look at this passage from Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh... Israel is my firstborn son. That's especially significant because Pharaoh considered himself the son of a God. So Moses is telling, I mean, God is telling Moses, you go to Pharaoh who thinks he's a son of 
a God and you go tell him that Israel is my firstborn son. And so Israel's and so common is that motif, Hosea uh, 11.1, one, out, of, out of Egypt I called Israel to be my son. Um, so common is that motif that a lot of scholars think the reason Jesus is called the son of God is because he is the fulfillment of Israel. I'm not quite there, but let's keep going. So we've got Israel we can add. Angels in the Bible are called sons of God. In a number of different places. The clearest one is in Job. In Job we have, in Job 1.6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan is among them. Those are the angels. There are lots of Jewish writings in between, time-wise, in between the old, closing of the Old Testament and the start of the New. We have a lot of Jewish writings in that time period where they talk about angels being sons of God. What else? Kings. Even kings are called sons of God in the Old Testament. When God is talking to David about how God is going to bless David's son, Solomon. God says the following. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. And I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Talking about Solomon, King Solomon. So look what you have here. You have... Hmm, all of these options. Which one does John mean? When John talks about Jesus being the Son of God, does he mean he's like a Greek hero? Like a Roman emperor? Like a Pharaoh? The nation of Israel? A king of Israel? There are some intertestamental writings that say the Messiah is also going to be a Son of God. What does he mean? He doesn't mean any of that. John says, Jesus is the Son of God. But John says, he is a unique Son of God. He's unlike any concept of Son of God you've ever heard before. He's not a son of God in the sense of a Greek hero who's just the genetic offspring of a God who breeds with a woman. He's not the son of God in the sense of a Roman emperor who didn't used to exist but came into being with some special spirit or Pharaoh. He's not a son of God in the sense that God created him out of nothing and brought him as a people out of a country. John uses the word in a unique fashion to say that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what I want us to focus on. So how are we going to do that? We're going to put up a chalkboard. Now, you young kids don't know what this is. This is a chalkboard. You take chalk and you write on it. It's like those, I think you all use whiteboards with these markers that may 
function that way for you, but I've never seen one where the marker doesn't feel like it's about to dry out. Chalk, no problem. As long as it's there, you got writing. True? Okay. Thank you. Now, so let's pull up the chalkboard. Let's get out the chalk and let's talk about this. Here's what we're saying. We're saying Jesus in John as the Son of God is unique. He's a unique Son of God. He's not like any Son of God anybody had been writing about, talking about, or claiming to be. Jesus is unique in this. Singular. You know, my wife has an occasional ability to correct my grammar and my English. And generally, she's not right. But occasionally she is. No, she's very good at this, which is why we can't look, we, we look forward to having children because she'll be a grammarian. Um, gr- grandchildren, never mind. So anyway, so Becky says the following to me one day. I said, look, this is very unique. She says, it's not possible. I said, what do you mean? She said, nothing can be very unique. This is what I live with. And I know, I'm joking. I'm joking, I adore her. And I said, what do you mean it can't be very unique? She said, what does unique mean? I said, one of a kind. She said, well, how is something very one of a kind? If it's unique, it's unique. If it's not unique, you can say this is very rare. But don't say it's very unique. That's just saying it's very one of a kind. So I was going to take issue with her. So I went back and I looked it up. She's dead right. Which is very unique in our relationship. So, Jesus, I mean it in the true sense that my wife has taught me, that word. Jesus is unique. He's one. He's the only one. There is no other that's the Son of God the way he is. And John makes that very direct point. And we should not read Jesus is the Son of God and think of it like we think of our children. We're destroying the Trinity if we do that. So, what do we do? Well, first of all, if you're a Jew at the time of Jesus and you want to prove something, how do you do it? What do you do for proof? Get a witness. One witness? Two takes two witnesses to prove anything. That's the rule. That's the Jewish rule of court. In fact, Jesus at times gets in trouble because the Jews say, well, hey, you may say that about yourself, but that's, you're just one witness. You need another. Got to have two witnesses. John knows this. He's a good Jew, and he's writing with Jewish people, so he needs proof. What does he need? He needs two witnesses. What does he do at the very start of his gospel? He gives you two witnesses to Jesus being the Son of God. Who's witness number one? Any guesses? John the Baptist is witness number one. John 1, 34. John says the following. I have seen and I have borne witness. I'm witness number one that this is the Son of God. 
I have seen and I have borne witness. In other words, I'm an eyewitness. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in just a matter of of verses, the very next story that John relates to us is one that switches scenes from witness number one, John the Baptist. You've got to have witness number two. Who is witness number two? Nathaniel. In John 1.49, Jesus is able to point out to Nathaniel where he's been before, what he's been thinking as he sat underneath the tree before he was called to Jesus. Nathaniel, at first the skeptic, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Shows up, sees Jesus, says, oh my, be rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So John gives us two witnesses right out of the box. Then John gives us four stories where Jesus is acclaimed the son of God. It's not the only four references. There's Pilate is told also, hey, this guy says he's the son of God, which made Pilate quiver. And you can understand why, because Pilate knew what the Romans knew. Pilate knew what the Greeks knew. He's thinking son of God like, wow, this guy might be emperor one day. <laughs> Let me find out where he's from. Where are you from? You don't have to be from Rome, do you? You're not here checking up on me. So, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You've got the two witnesses. You've got then four accounts. And let's look at those four accounts of Jesus. The four stories where Jesus is proclaimed son of God. We won't have time to look at all four of them, I don't think. But we'll come close. Anybody guess story number one? Nicodemus. Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So if we can go to the Elmo... Let's see what we can find here on Nicodemus. We need that, we need that, we need this. Ooh, look at there. Now, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's in the synagogue, uh, uh, the uh, Sanhedrin, the ruling Sanhedrin. This man came to Jesus by night. Scholars fuss over whether or not that's a nuance that he was going there at night because he didn't want anybody to see. Or is it a reference to him in John's language of night being he's in darkness, spiritual darkness. Take your money, make your pick. Maybe it's both. And said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, a rabbi come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So we know you're a rabbi. We know you're sent from God. We know God's with you. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If there's not, and it's not a born again in a spiritual, in, in a physical birth, if there's not some new birth from above, You can't see the kingdom. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Man's not entering into a a second time in his mother's womb. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. And they have this discussion. Jesus says, that born of the flesh is flesh. That born of the spirit's the spirit. Now, as Jesus continues to talk, Nicodemus gets kind of glassy-eyed. 
He's not following all of this. It's kind of hard to understand. So Nicodemus says, I don't get it. How, how can this be? I, I don't, I'm not following. I'm not tracking. Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you're not understanding what I'm saying? Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Saying you're not following what we're saying. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I explain how God does all of this? No one's ascended into heaven except the one that descended, the Son of Man. Then, now keep following. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now we got a problem here as... English people reading the Greek. Greek did not have quotation marks. So we don't know exactly where Jesus quits speaking and John starts commenting. Some scholars think this is where Jesus quits speaking. The English Standard Version does not, so they don't put quotation marks there. Instead, they put a footnote 7. And they say that some interpreters, here's footnote 7, some interpreters hold the quotation ends at verse 15. D.A. Carson, for example, who will be preaching here in uh, two months, believes that. Then, either Jesus continues speaking, which I believe, or John begins commenting, which other wonderful scholars believe, And we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that verse is one of the most marvelous verses in all of Christian history for what it says about what God is about. But it's also a verse that's caused some problems for people. Because a lot of people think of it in the King James Version. And if we follow the King James Version, Jesus is the only what son? Begotten. And we start thinking begotten like giving birth to. But that's not what it meant. That's not at all what it meant. And the Greek word there, monogenes, means the unique one. The the only one, truly only That is the same word you would use in Greek for unique. John is telling us in very plain terms, Jesus is not a son of God like you've ever heard it before. Jesus is a unique, one of a kind, singular, never to be repeated, never happened before. A unique, singular, individual, monogenes, only son of God. There is something about Jesus that's unique. That's the first passage. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, we've got Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Next passage we've got. Next story. There's a lame man in John chapter 5 who gets healed. And it's an interesting healing. If we go back to the Elmo again, please. Thank you. It's an interesting healing. There's a feast of Jews. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. There is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, 
a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. It's got five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame. Where are we? Blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, one man's there who'd been there for 38, an invalid for 38 years. Not there for 38. But a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus sees him lying there. Now, we know from other sources that these people believed that an angel would stir up the waters. And if an angel stirred up the waters, first one in got healed. It's like a lottery system. Your number came up if you were the first one after the stir. But you got to be first. That's their superstitious belief. Now, Jesus sees him lying there. Jesus knew he'd been there a long time. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The sick man says, I don't have him. I put me in the pool when the water stirred up. Wine, 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 wine. Not my fault. How am I going to be healed? I'm lame. Do you think I'm winning the race? Jesus said, just get up. Take up your mat and walk. This man didn't ask to be healed. Jesus picks him out of the crowd. This man is not a paragon of faith. He's a whiny pants. Oh, I'm not making that up. Keep reading the story with me. So he's healed. He takes up his bed and he walks. Now that happens on the Sabbath day. So the Jews see this man who's been healed. Hey, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat around. That's illegal. That's doing work on the Sabbath. You can go to hell for that. And he said to them, Hey, this guy who healed me, he told me to do it. Go blame him. Not my fault. How's that for gratitude? I got your back. Not. Don't blame me. Blame him. I'm just doing it because he told me to. And they said, well, who's this fella that said it? Look at this line. Now, the man who'd been healed didn't know who it was. If someone healed you of being lame for 38 years, do you think you'd have taken time to say, thank you so much, tell me who you are, what could I do for you? As opposed to picking up your mat, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay, and just heading off. And then the minute you get called down on it, you say, hey, hey, not my fault, it's this guy who healed me, he told me to do this. Who is he? I I don't have a clue. I got healed, I left, man. So afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple. The guy's not looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I see you're sick. I mean, you're well. Do you see that? See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What do you think the guy does? He goes and he rats Jesus out. He goes running back to the Jews. He goes away. He finds the Jews and says, hey, I know who it was now. I know who it was. It's that Jesus guy who healed me. That's who you're after. Talk about ingratitude. 
This is why Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus' response is, my father is working until now, so I'm working. And, And John emphasizes it. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I've pulled out and put into the written lesson in bold print what you can follow from this. But what it means in the sense of Jesus being equal with God. Jesus is not saying as a son, he's inferior. He's not saying he's generation removed from God. He's saying that he's a son in the sense that God has put him here with all of the authority that God has. God has put him here to run God's program, to do God's will. He's, he's, he's the guy in charge of the estate, the family business. How many of you watch Duck Dynasty? All right. You know how the, Willie runs the family business, right? While his dad's helping Miss Kay with whatever he's got to help with Miss Kay with. Okay. Jesus has all the authority of the Father. He's not son in the sense of genetic offspring. He's son in the sense that he has full authority of the Father. It's as if the Father were there. He knows what the Father's thinking. He is an equal with the Father. Jesus, the Son, is not inferior to God the Father. See, we also have this concept because we know, we go back to that John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave or he sent. Like, okay, I want you to go do that now, son. That's not the relationship that's truly being conveyed there. That's us reading our culture and into this. Jesus is an equal with God. He's on earth to do the work of God. Why is Jesus an equal with God? Because he's God. There's one God. So Jesus is on earth as an equal because he is God. And what we see in Jesus is an expression of God who's in heaven. Jesus made it clear, you can't know what's going on in heaven. You hadn't been there. So you see me and you know what the will of the Father is. You see me and you see the Father. I am the Father to you. And this is what he explains here under the, this section where he says, I, own, I can do nothing of my own accord. I only do what I see the Father doing. Because we're one and the same. My, my Father's will is my will. I don't run left if he runs right. I run the same direction he does. Whatever the Father does, that's what I do. The Father loves the Son, shows him all that he's doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you can marvel. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, the Son gives life. The Father doesn't judge. He lets judgment come to the Son. Why? It's the passage we've already gotten. It's who believes in the Son that is forgiven. It's who doesn't believe that's under judgment still. 
So judgment is tied in with the Son and our belief on who the Son is and our trust of who the Son is. And so we have all of this in this passage. And at the end of this passage, you, you, you get a fullness of understanding of how Jesus works and, and who he is and how his ministry is. Let's go back to the PowerPoint. Story number three. We're doing, okay, we've got to move fast. Hanukkah. You all know the Hanukkah story in the Bible. You may not know it as Hanukkah because they don't call it Hanukkah, but it's Hanukkah. Jesus celebrates Hanukkah in John chapter 10. Hanukkah is a festival of lights, a feast of dedication. It's the, 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 when they rededicated the temple after it had been uh, um, uh, desecrated and, um, uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes. And so it was rededicated after the uh, Maccabean Revolution. And they continued to have a feast of lights or a feast of dedication. We call that today Hanukkah. So at that time, and you know Hanukkah happens generally right before Christmas, right? So at the time the feast of the dedication or Hanukkah took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, right? It was December. Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade. The Jews gathered around him. And they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus says, I told you. You didn't believe. I told you the works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. They are a testimony that I'm doing them in my Father's name. We'll deal with name next week, God willing. It's a testimony. But you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep here, I know them. They follow me. I'll give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of those are you going to stone me? You're going to stone me because I healed somebody? You're going to stone me because I gave sight to the blind? Walking to the lame? Jews said, oh, it's not for a good work we're going to stone you. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you're a man, but you make yourself God. Jesus points out, well, it's written in your law. I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm doing the works of my Father, believe me. Or if I'm not doing, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, you ought to at least believe the works. You ought to understand the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So again, they seek to arrest him. And do you know what he does? Jesus leaves. He gets out of Jerusalem. Goes all the way down past Jericho, across the Jordan River. And that's where he's staying when a short time later he gets word. And this moves us to story number, if we go back to the PowerPoint, story number four, raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, if we go back to the Elmo, how are we doing? Ah, ah, time. Okay, so uh, this is the Dead Sea. 
uh, Sea of Galilee, uh, Galilee. Um, this is uh, Israel. Goes up like that. Um, this is the Mediterranean. Oh, well, y'all need to say I'm making a fool of myself. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, here's the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Jericho. We'll use a J. Jesus leaves the mountains of Jerusalem, goes all the way down, crosses, and goes over to the Jordan. Now, gets word that Lazarus is sick. Understands how sick Lazarus is and that it's unto death. Jesus says, I'm going to take care of this. But it's going to have to wait a few moments, a few days. See, now Jesus has just left Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. Lazarus lives with Mary and Martha in Bethany. The Bethany that is 1.75 miles outside the wall of Jerusalem. 1.75 miles? That's like uh, closer than Payway. That's how close to Jerusalem Jesus is going. And Jesus goes back to do something about his friend who's sick. So, let's look then at the story. Lazarus. Now, we read. How are we doing? Okay, We're going to do this fast. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. What? Then after this, he said, let's go to Judea. It's the area of Jerusalem. The disciples said, hey, Rabbi, remember we were just there and the Jews were trying to stone you there. You want to go there again? Jesus said, hey, there are 12 hours in the day. If we're walking in the day, we don't stumble because we see the light of the world. We only stumble if we walk at night. They don't follow what he's saying, I don't think. But he's saying, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, we're okay. Don't fret about it. So after saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go wake him up. They said, hey, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up on his own. It's routine. He says, no, you don't understand. That was an expression. He's dead. And they said, oh, okay. See, Jesus had to tell them plainly, he's died. So, but I'm glad for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. For your sake. See, these miracles are going to give his apostles an intellectual reason to believe Jesus is in fact uniquely God. Because no one else has the power to raise the dead. And Jesus says he's not doing it for any way except as the Father. One with the Father. Now, if you're facing a question of whether or not Jesus truly was who Jesus said he truly was, and your life is forfeit, and you're about to be burned at the stake unless you're willing to say, hey, I was wrong about Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice to have intellectual confirmation, which these apostles had, this is being done for them. Jesus says, I want you to see this. This is for your sake. You need to see this. So Jesus comes. Martha says, oh, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Don't you have faith I can bring him back? Yes, but she doesn't mean it. 
Jesus goes to the tomb. He's been dead four days. Jesus says, roll the stone back. I said, why would we? It's, it's going to stink. Doesn't matter. Roll the stone back. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out. He's still wrapped in his burial clothes. Jesus says, unwrap him. But in the process of this, Jesus raising him and him coming out, Mary testifies. Whoops, here we go. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who's coming into the world. And that's who he is. So now if we go back to the PowerPoint. Here's what we've got in John. We've got... The teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, but not in the sense that we have children. Jesus is the Son of God in a unique way. Jesus is the one who uniquely is the Father. Now, if you may be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. So there's no distinction between God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. There is. They are a distinct personage, whatever We consider that to mean, though, it does not mean they're three independent entities. It is one God. He is one God. They are one God. There is only one God. Am am I going to explain now the intricacies of that? No. I can't. I haven't ascended to heaven. And I'm not sure I would have the vocabulary if I did. But the confirmation is that Jesus is not the Son of God in the sense that he came into being at some point in time. That's not what John teaches. And this isn't, hey, well, Lanier, that's your opinion. I've got my own. No, I'm just telling you, that's John's opinion. John's not saying that, John nowhere says that Jesus just came into existence. John's the one who says Jesus was already in the beginning. So this is what we have. Points for home. By the way, we're not through with this. See, that's a link in this chain of what John's doing. We've still got to unpack the rest of it to look at the miracles fairly. So come back next week. I'm excited about what we get to do next week. Here are your points for home. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Nicodemus finds this out when Nicodemus comes to him at night. But this was very enlightening information. And whether Nicodemus came to him at night because he was embarrassed, or whether Nicodemus came to him at night in a spiritual darkness, the light of the world shined at that moment in Nicodemus' world, in life, in mind. And he shines in ours. And we get to walk in that light. We get to walk in an awareness of who Jesus is. We get to change the way we do business because we know God as he walked on earth. Point home two. Whiny pants. The lame man. The narc. The rat. The sellout. The... No count. I don't like him. I'll just be honest with you. I really don't like the guy. I don't like his failure to take responsibility. He is, to use Pastor Michael's words this morning, irresponsible. 
I don't like his failure to take responsibility. I don't like him ratting out Jesus, trying to get on the good side with the rulers by telling on the fellow who healed him. I don't like his ingratitude. But you know what bothers me most about him? I think I see him sometimes when I look in the mirror. And I don't, I don't like that. And I don't want to be that way. And I want to be grateful. And I want to seek Jesus out. And I want to stand firm with him. And I don't want to sell him out for popularity, for protection, for comfort. I, I want to be, I don't want to be that guy. And I pray for forgiveness when I am. Last point for home. This illness of Lazarus caused a lot of pain, caused a lot of grief. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the New Testament, in the Bible, Jesus wept, is in that story. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Wow. Amazing. Glory to God, who called Lazarus from the dead and instills life in us today. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us, please. Wash us in the blood of the Lamb. Shine your light into the darkest corners of our, of our lives, our minds, our hearts. Well up within us your holiness. Grow your fruit from the inside out. May we overflow and show the world your love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. May we be your light. May we embrace who you are, Lord. With no fear and no shame. And may we share it and live it before this world. We pray through Jesus, through God, made man. Amen.